A reading for the, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach him that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called a crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the Gospel of Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts help us to grow into the likeness of Christ and the power of God's Spirit. Amen. Well, Jesus was a great storyteller, perhaps the best ever, and um, I think many would agree with that. But how often do we note that Jesus was a great question asker? In the Gospels, Jesus asks way more questions than he gives answers. He asks more than 300 questions and he answers only a couple. Is there a question that Jesus asks in the gospel that particularly comes to mind for you? Perhaps one of those questions he asks the crowd, can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your span of life, what do you want me to do for you? Or to those, uh, the woman who came to him for help, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? To the disciples, he asked, do you love me? Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why are you sleeping? And then that gut-wrenching question Jesus asks from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Asking questions was central to Jesus' life and teachings. 
In the rabbinic tradition in which Jesus was raised, debate was integral to the process of understanding the scriptures. The rabbi and the disciple wrestled with God and wrestled with the meaning of scripture. They encountered this in dialogue and in debate. And the purpose was to be formed by and to encounter God in the process, more so than it was to arrive at an answer. We live in a world where dialogue is often stifled or limited. Our scientific Western tradition has formed us to explore life and faith in pursuit of definitive answers and then to call that the truth. This can be really unhelpful because the big questions that matter most are seldom as clear-cut as that. Truth emerges from our wrestling, from our maturing along the journey. Truth involves living with paradox, and we encountered one of those in our gospel reading today, that those who want to find their life must lose it. Those with whom we disagree can be a gift to us, a gift to our lives, because perhaps they hold part of the truth that we haven't yet grasped. Christians believe that God is the source of all truth. The biggest questions, the ones that people have asked for as long as there have been people around to ask questions, require rigorous, passionate and thoughtful conversations so that people can discover the timeless truths in ways that are relevant for their culture and their time in history. Questions like, is there a God? And if so, where, how, what is God like? Why do bad things happen to good people? That is, if God is good, why do innocent people experience pain and suffering? What happened in the very beginning? What happens when we die? As we approach the questions and responses that we encounter in today's reading, it seems really important to have an awareness that Jesus and the gospel writers had a really different mindset regarding the role of questions and dialogue and debate from our 21st century methodology. Let's also provide a little bit of geographical context to our reading that might be helpful. Mark's gospel is a continuous narrative it, that it concerns itself with two things, Jesus' identity and the nature of discipleship. It begins in the Judean desert where Jesus comes from Galilee to be baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus is then driven into the wilderness by the Spirit for 40 days where he's tempted by Satan. Then Jesus returns to Galilee to begin his ministry, and he makes the focus of his ministry really clear. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. In Galilee, Jesus calls his disciples and he also encounters a lot of conflict with the religious authorities as he heals people and as he teaches in parables. He then expands his ministry and he moves between Gentile and Jewish territory with the good news of the kingdom of God. And the passage that we read today is the culmination of that section. Jesus and his disciples are traveling north from Bethsaida on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. 
I've travelled that road twice in the last 10 years and I have some vivid memories. Firstly, of approaching the Syrian-Lebanese mountain range where Mount Hermon is located at the southern end. Secondly, of a very strong military presence close to the Syrian border. And thirdly, of busloads of young Jewish Americans visiting Caesarea Philippi on their all-expenses-paid cultural visit to Israel. So likewise, in Jesus' day, there were many influences at play in that location. It was Gentile territory. The Greeks had built a shrine to their god, Pan, and Herod had built a temple to the Roman emperor, Augustus, who was also considered to have the status of a god. So it was an interesting location in which Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Their response has its roots in um, our Jewish texts. They say John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. So sure, people will have their explanations and their ideas about who Jesus is, and Jesus gets that. And he turns to, to the disciples, but who do you say I am, he asks. Who do you say I am? This question is like the hinge around which Mark's gospel is built. Jesus' identity is revealed and the nature of discipleship is made clear. It's made really clear. It's also a turning point geographically as from here Jesus and his disciples head back south, back to Jerusalem, which culminates in Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Who do you say I am? In his usual style, Peter's got this, and he answers on behalf of the disciples, you are the Messiah. Other translations say you are the Christ. And the Greek word is actually Christos, which means anointed one. In the New Testament, this is used more than 500 times to refer to Jesus. It's important. Mark uses Christos in the opening sentence of his gospel to introduce the subject of his biography. But he doesn't use it again until this verse in chapter 8. Mark 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, this notion of Messiah is complex, um, emerging from Jewish texts that refer to the fulfillment of God's promises regarding the eternal rule of a king, possibly from the line of David. Elijah was thought to be a forerunner of the Messiah, and the prophet most concerned with the kingship of Israel was Isaiah, who Mark quotes in chapter 1. And then the Old Testament book of Daniel refers to one called the Son of Man, and by the first century, this idea was also associated with the Messiah. So each New Testament writer combines these views with their own particular emphasis. And it's unlikely that Peter's response, you are the Christ, had a, that in offering this response, that he had a really clear idea about what this meant for Jesus or for the disciples. Peter would have had an expectation of some kind of victory where God's rule on earth would be established by reversing the political fortunes of the people of Israel and overthrowing oppressive Roman rule. For Jesus, though, 
establishing God's rule focused not on political overthrow by power and force, but rather the call, the invitation to his followers to enter into a relationship with God where justice and peace and concern for all is what matters most. God's rule comes by the paradox of suffering and death. In effect, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm not a political conquering Messiah. Rather, I am a Messiah who suffers, dies, and through resurrection brings life to humanity, to us. So in chapters 1 to 8, Jesus' identity is shaped by the acts of healing, raising the dead, casting out demons, and importantly, forgiving sins. And now in this moment, located near great monuments dedicated to other gods, and in the light of the conflict that Jesus' ministry has created with the Jewish authorities, Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah is the pivot around which Mark merges the distinctive elements of Jesus' ministry and his role as Messiah. There's another name for Jesus that we encounter in this passage, and it's the name that Jesus uses for himself, Son of Man. There's also quite a background to this phrase, but suffice to say that with it, Jesus intentionally identifies his humanity while linking it to his identity as Messiah. So we have Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man. Who do you say that I am? Could this same question be a hinge around which we build our lives? Surrounded by the gods that we encounter, the gods of consumerism, of science and technology, of individualism, of pleasure, the God of achievement. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to me? We call ourselves Christians. At our baptism, we respond to that question, do you turn to Christ? When we celebrate communion, we share in the body and blood of Christ. We use the acclamation that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And when we conclude worship, we sometimes use the words, go in peace to love and serve the Lord in the name of Christ. Soon after Peter declares, you are the Christ, Jesus tells the disciples for the first time that he will suffer, be condemned to death, die and rise again. Peter challenges Jesus about this and receives a stern reprimand. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on divine things, but on human things. Remember the rabbinic tradition of debate and dialogue? We've already noted that in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is driven into the desert where he was tempted by Satan Here it's as though Peter is seeking to lead Jesus astray in the same way by suggesting that Jesus doesn't really have to carry the full weight of suffering and death. Just as Jesus' identity has been revealed, so too is the nature of discipleship, a nature of the life that we are invited into. 
If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And then two more questions. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? What can they give in return for their life? To carry one's cross was a shocking image for Jesus to offer. As an instrument of Roman torture and death, criminals were often ordered to carry the crossbeam to the place of their crucifixion. This would have been anathema for Peter, who thought that for Jesus to be the, the Messiah meant victory. That the Messiah would bring in his reign by having to bear the weight of a Roman death was humiliating, even shameful. So I wonder, with all that said, where do we get the idea that because we might call ourselves Christians that we should be spared suffering? That somehow we are entitled to a comfortable, painless life? How committed are we to carrying the burden of justice, of mercy, of loving one another as we serve and follow Christ? How much like Peter are we when we think we have God all sorted and in our back pocket? Are we setting ourselves up when we do that for disappointment, to be shocked, to discover that Jesus Christ is more than we have understood him to be? It seems we, fit, we find our life when we are willing to move the focus from pleasing ourselves to following Christ the one who is able to establish God's reign of love, justice, mercy, and peace. That we can know Christ, follow Christ, serve Christ, and love Christ, and be loved in return is more than good news. It's amazing, incredible, wonderful news. Peter isn't shattered when Jesus rebukes his lack of understanding. A few verses later, Peter finds himself on the mountaintop with Jesus and with James and John in the, um, in the transfiguration. And then Peter features prominently during the passion. He continues to be strong and he continues to have very human doubts and fears through that passion narrative in Mark. And yet Peter doesn't unravel not when Jesus rebukes him near Caesarea Philippi and nor when Peter is distraught with his denial of Jesus in Jerusalem after Jesus' arrest. It seems to me that we can easily become unraveled by our questions and by how we understand God to be acting in our lives in ways that, G that Peter wasn't unraveled. I wonder, has there been a time in your life where your certainty about God unraveled in some way. Perhaps it was a time of conflict or a time of loss or a time of apathy and your understanding of God unraveled. When we lost our teenage son to cancer, my picture of God was certainly challenged. It was a vulnerable time for us 
and my faith could have easily become unraveled. I argued with God. I said, well, we've tried so hard to live faithful lives as followers of Christ. And yet, by the grace of God, I found myself returning time and time again as life continued, even after that, to continue to throw curveballs. found myself returning to the same place as Peter when we encounter him, not in Mark's gospel, but in John's gospel at the end of chapter 6. When Jesus asked the disciples, do you also wish to go away? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. When we find we have all the answers and we've run out of questions, we're in trouble. When we spend time on questions that in the end don't really matter, we're in trouble. As we continue to grow in our relationships with one another and with God, let us not be afraid to be a community who faithfully follows and serves Christ in one another, whilst at the same time wrestling with important questions that will lead us to life-giving relationships with Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, who leads us into a future where paradoxes and questions will ultimately be resolved. Amen.